Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm honored to have our friend and colleague, Kay Unger, with us. Kay is the CEO of Kay Unger Design, and she is the Chair Emerita at the Parsons School of Design here in New York. She's also a trustee at the New School University and on many other boards and doing many great other initiatives that we'll talk about today. Kay Unger, welcome to The Caring Economy. Hi, Toby. I'm so honored to be here today. I have listened to many of your podcasts. I've already learned a great deal, but it's really a thrill because we both have the same passion mm -hmm. and I've learned a lot of it from you. <laughs> You're sweet. I think we all kind of go through the space and time inspiring each other and challenging each other and inviting each other to be part of something bigger. I know you've done that for me in Harlan with Parsons and, uh, and so many other things, which we'll talk about today. Um, and I also, um, I'm just in awe of what you've accomplished for our audience. I want them to know that you really are a pioneering woman to have started a fashion label way back when, to come to New York and cut out your own path in a way that um, seems familiar now, but back in the late 60s, early 70s, when you were doing it, a Midwestern girl coming East and doing it, it was astonishing. So instead of my telling the audience your story, why don't you give our audience a little bit of an overview of how you got where you got and maybe share some of the pivots along the way. Well, I'm a Midwest girl, as I noticed many of your speakers have been. I grew up outside of Chicago and I was always a talented you know, artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone gave, gave me a hint in high school actually, follow your art, don't try and be everybody else. And I grew up, my dad was a phenomenal um, entrepreneur, real estate mogul, if you wanna say, but involved in so many businesses. And my mom stayed home. She was a beautiful woman, wore gorgeous clothes, which is I think where I got the inspiration. Hmm. But to tell you really where the nugget was, where all this began, was when I was four and um, my brother who was seven drowned oh. and he fell through the ice in one of the ravines near my house, et cetera, et cetera. And the interesting part of that was obviously it affects your life mm. and how you look at everything, which I will tell you right as we go along, but it showed me how people, my dad took that, that, that heartbreak and put all of his efforts into giving back. He started a foundation called the Epstein Fine Arts Foundation as part of Boys Clubs of America. And he gave money to young kids like myself, but ones who weren't so fortunate, mm -hmm. talented in the arts and music, et cetera. I grew up around philanthropy. Wow. And the beauty was, is that he was a very successful man. At the end of the year, he would say to many people that he did business with, I've made enough this year, give the rest to the Boys and Girls Club, to this foundation. <laughs> so this was in the back of my mind when I went on to go to Washington, I graduated, went on to Washington University in St. Louis, where I was studying to be a painter, decided I wasn't a great painter and that I always had the desire to support myself. And so I tried fashion. I had always played with it, dressed my dolls, et cetera, and figured in the back of my head was this person who said to me, follow your art. Mm -hmm. 
And so I did. And I just always gave myself this goal. Let me see if I can reach her. And my next step, I met my first husband who gave me name Unger. Otherwise, it would have been Schmatas by Epstein. <laughs> Which has a nice ring to it for us in New York anyway. <laughs> Maybe as I do a collection, as I get older and older, it'll be Schmatas by Epstein. But that's the honest truth. He, he was a great oh. guy. He gave me a great name. But while I was at Parsons, my father passed away. And I also realized that I, he always said to me, you're going to go and do something wonderful. I didn't know what it meant, but I also knew I wasn't meant to be married and cook dinner and do all these things. Mm -hmm. So I graduated Parsons and um, my next step was to work for Jeffrey Bean. Myself, Ize Miyake and Michael Volbrock, it was an amazing experience. And then eventually I left there and worked for Trina Norell mm -hmm. and did my own, own collection called Trina Boutique. But about two years into it, I became very famous. And the boss's wife was sort of envious of me. And all I wanted to do was work hard. So I left and went to work for a company. And they were making me make jogging suits, etc. And my father had passed away. Um, and all of a sudden, I get a check in the mail. He had not given me, left me any money. Get a check in the mail for $25,000. And it was from my dad. Hmm. Somewhere along the way, he knew about a year or two out of school, I might need that. And I had been approached by Liberty of London. I love their prints, et cetera. This is how little I knew about business, Toby. Hmm. Went to Liberty London. I handed them the check. I said, here's $25,000. I'm going to buy assorted prints, ship them to my living room, and I'm going to figure out what to do with them. Wow. And that's exactly what I did. I started my first company, Kay Unger, and it was all mixed prints of Liberty of London. Bloomingdale's was my first big customer. Mm -hmm. I used to, and I worked with one of the factories I had met during my prior, you know, working for Jeffrey Bean. And I literally would work with this factory at night, keep my day job, pack everything in my apartment, get on my bicycle, go to Bloomingdale's. And I made them pay me when I delivered it. The interesting thing about this was I didn't realize that I was learning business because I'd already paid for enough fabric for the year. Long story short, I started my first business and it was called Kay Unger. And then I brought in partners and we began a company called Gillian for 23 years until my partner embezzled all the money and Whoa. we went bankrupt. <laughs> and then I started Kay Unger New York. So it's been quite a career in the fashion business. And as you know, then I pivoted to Parsons School of Design becoming the chair. Mm -hmm. And the story goes on and on. Well, Kay, I uh, let the record reflect that I do not like the expression, let's unpack that, but I would like to unpack some things there for our audience who don't necessarily know fashion. Three people, concepts, or brands real quickly, give us a, a quick intro. Schmata, Liberty <laughs> of London, Jeffrey Bean. Okay, so I'll start with Jeffrey Bean. So Jeffrey Bean was one of the most phenomenal American couture designers. And very, when I worked for him, it was, his look was very classic, gray flannel, white collar, little black robe, grain ribbon. The beauty of working with him in those days was you would make these beautiful clothes. He would literally roll a, a mannequin with one of his dresses in, in the morning, and we would work on it all day, Isei mm -hmm. Miyake and I. But that was couture. 
and um, sort of American couture. You always think of French couture. Mm -hmm. It was an incredible experience in learning about how never to give up. You'd have to work on a dress all day. Shmata. I guess that's sort of a Jewish expression. Yiddish, yes, for like clothes. <laughs> so shmat is how people were used to refer to the garment industry. Mm -hmm. So you have to, what we should give some context to this, Toby, mm -hmm. that I graduated Parsons in 1968. So here you're looking at me with my pigtails, but yes. I'm definitely quite a bit older. And that's what fashion was like then. Mm -hmm. And then your last question was, okay, that's Jeffrey, Norman Durrell, and um, then I Liberty of London. So Liberty of London, back in the 70s and late 60s, it's beautiful little prints. And many people, you would know these because they're used for tablecloths, for even now, um, J. Crew uses them for print shirts, et cetera, but in that, those days, only Cacherelle made blouses from Paris out of Liberty of London. And because of my painterly background, I was always wonderful with color. Mm. And they said to me, we would love to collaborate with you. And then I get that check. Wow. And it remains, Liberty of London, like your brand, remains incredibly prestigious to this day. Um, so let's also we talk about pivots on the show, Kate. To be embezzled by your partner, briefly, what happened there and what lessons did you learn? Well, when I learned that I had done, we had done very, very well. We had $300 million company, oh. you know, um, it was very, very popular. And yes, we were making good money. And I had bought a house in Belport, Long Island, you know, for what I thought was a lot of money. And then he bought a house in Southampton for $10 million. <laughs> that was the first sign. <laughs> note to self, <laughs> partners should not have bigger houses. <laughs> and also note to self, and I tell this to all the students I meet and all the people I mentor, learn about business. I didn't know. I mean, still, I've never written a business plan. No one believes it, but I always just went and did it. But really, that's one of the most important things. So I started to see the signs and um, my accountant um, became the accountant for the business and he was trying to figure out what was happening and then he got fired. So what we discovered was that my partner and the CFO was, were embezzling the money, making arrangements with the bank. It was really complicated. Wow. And my thinking was, I'm just going to work harder. I'm mm -hmm. just going to work harder and make it work. But eventually the banks came to us and called our loans and we went bankrupt. Wow. So I have been in, the, in your presence when friends and colleagues of mine, I'm thinking of Jill Holzman at the New York Times in particular, uh, met you through Harlan and me and their awe, their respect, that Kay Unger kind of thing. So for those of the audience who are not familiar with your brand or with fashion, what, Tell us who is your demographic and uh, some of the highlights you've had in, in your business. Well, my demographic, I sort of came about while I was working for Jeffrey Bean. Also when I went to college and I went with trunks of clothing because I was lucky to be brought up with, you know, very privileged. And I saw that nobody else wore nice dresses or anything. And I thought, 
this can't be, why can't I help them have this? Mm-hmm. And when I was working for Jeffrey Bean and the clothes were so simple, I thought I would really, I hope you don't mind if I say this, you can cut it. My goal was to cover the asses of the masses. <laughs> Love it. I did hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of women of really um, reasonably priced, well-made clothing. I understood women, not just myself, mostly were not all like myself. They had, you know, I understood the female body. And I used to make one of the first people to make all these dresses with folds. And I would say, my call, my our folds cover your folds mm-hmm. because it's very hard. So my clothing became, it's really well known as it was a girl's first dress. A mom bought this for her, a grandmother. It was her first dress. She was sweet 16. She was something like that. Then she wore it to prom. That's how one of my sons met his wife at Yale Day and Max because she was part of New Blue, the, um, you know, the singing group, and they all had to wear black dresses and they were all K-Unger. And he would wear a K-Unger hat and they would go, why do you know her? Because his last name is Pittman. Well, we all wear her dresses. So the other thing is, because all along the way, Toby, every time I did a trunk show, And that's the beauty of what my career was. Mm -hmm. I was in the dressing rooms with all the women. I knew them. I understood them. I knew all the generations. Unlike today, where it's so much done online, Mm -hmm. everybody comes to me, how do we bring that knowledge of Mm -hmm. what you learned in the dressing room? And um, also, also through all those years, I dressed them for all their special occasions. Mm -hmm. So it was the reunion they went to. It was their daughter, their son's wedding, Mm -hmm. an anniversary, you name it. That's when they wore our clothing. Um, I would like to ask you about that as I've seen it again in your presence with um, special moments, special people. You have a, a group of women who you have been with since wash you and you get together several times a year from all over the world they are your i think your backbone your posse i wonder if you if you agree with that and if you might discern a lesson or advice to give to our audience about forming those kinds of trusting relationships and caring supportive relationships does it have to be all female does it matter how how has that network worked for you Well, it's interesting because one of the things you mentioned in some of your notes was, you know, how has COVID Mm -hmm. affected so many of us? And those were my friends, even many of them from, I have one group that I have from WashU, but I have that special group that you met that are from high school. High school, yeah. High school. And what COVID did, it allowed us and, and forced us, whatever you want, to join together once a month. 11 of us to talk. That discussion, it was a very special group growing up. It was um, a tough high school. Nutria High School was very tough, very intellectual, but we are all very different. Several of us all had creative bents. So in these discussions, only two of us now are not retired, but they are doing such remarkable things. So this tie to each other And I must say, we are all but one the same religion. Mm -hmm. We all happen to be Jewish Mm -hmm. in a non-Jewish area. 
Hmm. I grew up, grew up across the street from a restricted neighborhood. Wow. We're all politically involved. So we happen to all be Democrats. Mm -hmm. And we all would talk always about how are we supporting, you know, how are we supporting Biden? How are we supporting the local elections, et cetera? One of our friends became part of an ashram and she has a different name, a different experience. She's the one who always asks, okay, enough about your grandchildren. What is everybody feeling? And that's the best part of this discussion. And the beauty is, the artwork that so many of them are doing, even they weren't trained in art. One has put this journal together, together of every day during the pandemic, along mm -hmm. with collaging. Others are knitting it, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable group. And it is really the core of sort of my friendships and yes. still my dearest friendships. Mm -hmm. I, I have always been in awe of it, which is why I asked about it. I, I think about them also as being very philanthropic. I, I'm going to just quickly read here for our audience from your bio, some of the things you've done, and then we will talk a little bit about it. So as I mentioned at the opening, Kay Unger, uh, who's with us today from Kay Unger Design on the Caring Economy. Um, Kay is the, she's a trustee at the New School. She's the chair emerita at the Parsons School of Design, her alma mater, one of her alma mater. She's a member of the Parsons School of Design Board of Governors since 2006. She also chaired it from 2013 to 2020. But if that's not enough, she also founded the Kay Unger Family Foundation, which where she serves as the chief executive. She's also very involved as your father was with his foundation through that foundation in funding scholarships and opportunities for less fortunate people to study art. And then, the list goes on. So you're in fashion for the front lines during COVID. You're with the New York Stem Cell Foundation. You are with Retailers United, uh, Promises Project, City of Hope, Council of Fashion Designers of America, the Fashion Group International, and the Boys and Girls Club of America, I assume also partly from your dad's influence. Um, how do you how do you focus your philanthropy and why do you do it? You've talked a little bit at the opening about the tragic loss of your brother and your family's response to that. Um, but it also sounds like your sisterhood kind of reinforced that as well. So you mentioned my friends mm -hmm. um, from high school, and it was interesting because we spoke just recently. And one supports the San Francisco Ballet and now is very involved in um, the clim climate change and mm -hmm. how it affects everything. And another one on verbal arts, etc. So obviously I come by it naturally. There is something about all my career, all my 50 years is in business. When I would do a trunk show, one of the rules, because I was real, I could sell ice to an SMO, I loved selling, was I wouldn't do a show if 10% didn't go back to the local cancer organization. Partially, I had cancer when I was 16 and it was very traumatic. Mm -hmm. My grandmother died of breast cancer. My aunt died of breast cancer. So I became very, very aware of how I could help and learned how to help people mm -hmm. while they had cancer, how to take care of their family, et cetera. So it's, it's really important to me. And of course, with the people we supported with the Epstein Fine Arts Foundation, for example, Earl Carlos, um, part of the Juilliard String Quartet, Emmanuel Axe, the famous pianist. These are all our scholars. Mm. I watched how it changed their life from when they were very small and had nothing. 
So it is this thrill of, I have to say, when I get a large donation for a really great cause, whether it's the Parsons Benefit or New York Stem Cell Research, where the founder of, of, of Moderna is on the board, mm-hmm. it's better than any big order I ever got from Bloomingdale's or even Marcus, et cetera. It is a thrill to one, educate people of how they can help. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps them emotionally and, mm-hmm. and giving back is so important. And you're talking about it so often in relationship to what does it do for your company? Mm-hmm. So there's so many challenges with my company way back. We used to do, unfortunately, it was called Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Now it would be Iron Woman. And I was usually one of the only ones where we would do tennis, golf, and um, I forget basketball. <laughs> But we would invite our, our vendors, et cetera, and they would buy, you know, tickets and so on. But he raised a lot of money to give to children with cancer on Long Island. There's so many different ways to do City of Hope. There's so, it's just, it is the most wonderful way. Mm-hmm. And then one of the new interesting ways, Toby, is the new company that I'm really kind of like the design director, and that is Line in the Sand, mm-hmm. which is a company that produces waterware and so on for women who might need um, protection from the sun. The founder has leukemia, Lynn O'Brien, and she said she got tired of asking people for money. She wanted to give them something, sell them something, and then take all the profits and give it to cancer and the ocean. So this is a new form of philanthropy that I think is very effective. Mm -hmm. And that is you're giving and you're getting in a most wonderful, it's like what we call sort of a shared philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that's a wonderful new tool and Mm -hmm. template for giving back. All the profits of this company go back to the ocean and to cancer. Yeah, I love it. I think, um, you know, philanthropy depends, you need to use the word with certain audiences and different with other. I think, for example, social impact is sometimes where I try to go now because there's business, there's for-profit businesses, there's not-for-profit businesses and impact investing and all these different variations. So it is important to think about the language we're using. What I like about what you've just described there is that it it really is a business, right? And it's 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 it doesn't pretend to be anything other than that. Um, you also remind me on an earlier episode in the caring economy this year, we had on my friend, Christine Heenan, you might want to take a listen. She is the head of communications for the parent company of Moderna and, uh, very exciting to see the kinds of things that are going on there and the philosophy of the founder and the business itself. Um, so, uh, I wanted to go back then and ask you a little bit about when you have been chairing the board at Parsons and when you're fundraising. And when you're going to these big brands that you've worked with or for, are there some are there some best in class examples you'd like to give a shout out to of brands that you really believe are living and breathing corporate social responsibility? Um, we don't have to point to any bad examples, but if you want to, I'd welcome those as well. Um, you know, sometimes they call it window dressing or greenwashing, but um, I'd certainly love to hear some of your heroes. I think um, I know. I would say probably know more, a little bit more about the heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one I'd like to pick is Jeff Gannett of Macy's. Mm-hmm. I think that they, he has been 
um, and you know from some of the people you've interviewed, Macy's has really been one of the big supporters of so many forms of philanthropy. Also, as part of philanthropy, climate change, sustainability, inclusion. Inclusion to me is also a very important part of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. so I think Macy's has done a really good, good job of that. And they have one group called The Workplace, I think it is, where it was all Black, mm -hmm. um, mostly women founders of small companies and supporting that way. They've also been incredibly generous in um, giving money for scholarship for the Parsons Scholars as well as other ways in, in training their staff. But the Parsons Scholars, which is one of the first ways I started giving, mm -hmm. is a wonderful 20-year-old program at Parsons that starts with high school kids who are in schools around the um, tri-state area who have no arts programs. And art is one of the best ways to learn. Mm -hmm. Consequently, we Parsons supports them through full scholarship. They come to Parsons for every Saturday for three years and two months every summer for three years. They get trained about culture and arts, etc., and they get free also training in um, college prep. Mm -hmm. It is so incredible. There's 95% success rate. And Macy's gave a big scholarship there. Mm -hmm. What I learned in one of my first big events I held with Tim Gunn was something called Be the Next. And that was the Bloomingdale's Bee. And that was for Parsons Scholars where Tim Gunn sold his book and gave all the money to Bloomingdale's Parsons alumni, gave their 10% of their profits and it and had Parsons Scholars work all throughout the store. It was really a great example. One of Bloomingdale's giving back. Mm -hmm. Tim Gunn, who's so incredible. People He's amazing. Know he is. About his, his philanthropy and how then you help these young people. There are so many different organizations and some the people, you know, there's just people who have been very, very successful. Mm -hmm. I think I've gotten to know so many. One through New York Stem Cell Research Foundation, Susan Solomon. Oh, yes. That organization is remarkable. It's all about science and it's all about, you know, supporting the future of science and stem cells. Mm -hmm. City of Hope. Um, as far as I think, so many organizations give back, but it's about the ones who do programs, I think, more than just, oh yes, I've bought a table. It's Great. all good. Authenticity in what you're trying to teach and explain to everybody is so important. So even on some of the collections that I help work on now, the fabrics have to be sustainable, the thread, the zippers, if it's authentic, and we all know that there's many companies now who pretend to be this, mm -hmm. quite honestly, it's so much to learn, Toby, mm -hmm. even in our own homes. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we throw away? What do we keep? Do we use a paper towel? Do we, do we use a hand towel and wash it all the time? Mm -hmm. So I think that everybody's trying, but what's really wonderful to see is I think, especially the younger public, they're starting to buy if the product is made right, if it's transparent, mm -hmm. if how they make it, even what their funds are. You think of Everlane, they usually give you a list of how everything is done. Yes. That's what's so important. Yes, I agree. And also I think, um, you know, on the social justice front, I think it's really about who has access to that brand. 
so it's not just the transparency how it's made, but are, are you genuinely trying to diversify your employee population and your audience base or are you not? And I try in my work now, and this podcast is a great example. I try to ask myself on every occasion, how can this exercise become more diverse and how can I be more catalytic? And I think in any organization, if we start our new meetings, our projects with that question and everyone at the table has that thought process, it's a muscle that we'll exercise and that we'll get better at. Because certainly social justice is never, it's not a point of arrival in my experience and all the work I've done through the years around LGBTQ activism, climate, animal rights. But, um, but you get better the more you do it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of consumers will give a brand the benefit of the doubt if they're at least trying to move in that direction. Nobody's perfect, but that's why the leadership thing is so important. So like when you talk about Jeff Gannett at Macy's, I, I get it instinctively, or I've, you know, I've talked with Zach Bookwald from BlackRock about Larry Fink there. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than an eight or $9 trillion asset manager getting serious about this stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I've been working on that I'm, I'm really proud of through started through um, fashion for the front lines where we made we pivoted factories all over the mm -hmm. world, mostly here in America, to make PPE. We tried, we were trying to do it with Parsons students who were left here in America when school closed. But we ended up going first globally and then to New York to Garmin Center Coalition that was formed. These are factories, Toby, never worked together. They was always in competition. Mm -hmm. They filled the need when, when the frontline workers were wearing plastic bags, et cetera. Now we need to look at how do we help all these American factories that mm -hmm. pivoted, but now have no work. Mm -hmm. And we're working in expanding sort of fashion for the front lines on with our government, hopefully, and um, a, a really wonderful roundtable. How do we then get um, uniforms, for example, made out of organic cotton made in America? Mm -hmm. There are so many, there are organic fabrics that we can use. And with the supply chain so broken, Toby, because of COVID, mm -hmm. why not look at the white space of our own country? And also what it does for the carbon footprint is remarkable. Yes, That is so important to dig deeper into. And it's one of my new passions that I'm trying to work on. I, um, I, I love hearing that, Kay. I also, I'm gonna put you on the spot. You don't have to answer this if you don't want, but it's about having less instead of having more. Um, specifically, I think uh, the fashion industry, retail in general, and uh, pop culture, the way we approach fashion and lifestyle, it's about consumption. There's so much consumption that it almost links consumption with patriotism. About a year and a half or two ago, I wrote an op-ed for Women's Wear Daily, prominent trade publication for the industry, saying basically, the question, the headline was what elephant? And the message was, I think there is denial in the fashion industry that the elephant in the living room is gross consumption, unbridled consumption. And why can't we accept that there's two sides of the coin is consumption and conservation. And can't we have less, but still have quality, have good. So, you know, you've made your fortune in large part from creating fashion 
what do you say about having less? And again, you don't have to answer if you don't want, but I'd be curious about your take. Um, well, I think it's really interesting. So you've been to my home. Mm -hmm. I used to have a beautiful art collection, which I just sold most of it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I've, I've been lucky enough to have it. I've enjoyed it. I've shared it. But my kids don't really want it. And uh, it's really important to all of us that we can use that money to then support young emerging artists or designers or, you know, people who need it. Well, it's the same with fashion. And I think it is changing. Yes. And that so many brands are now doing, you know, yes, Eileen Fisher is a model for this, where mm -hmm. you're giving back. And now you see they understand it's also, as you talk about, it's good business. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're going to Madewell and you're bringing all your jeans back, it's the, the reuse that's so mm -hmm. important. The upcycling. Mm -hmm. But part of luxury doing so well during these very difficult times is people do realize that they're buying something of quality that lasts and lasts and that they can resell it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing that's happened is yes, I'm, <laughs> you all can't see me, but I'm wearing a sweatshirt and my line in the sand leggings. And I put a dress on the other day and it felt very, very weird. <laughs> and I bought nothing new. <laughs> it's definitely these things. And less is becoming more, both in our lifestyle and in our clothing and our what we're buying. It just doesn't seem, at least the people I care about and the companies I care mm -hmm. about, that more is more. Mm -hmm. Less is more. How we use the money that we're making to help mental health, et cetera, is mm -hmm. so important. We learned this from COVID. But also, um, you just don't need as much. And one of the questions, you know, I think about is what has COVID, how has it changed mm -hmm. say, my life? There's less what we call FOMO, fear of missing out. Yes. And we're not, you know, we're not traveling as much. We are seeing you on Zoom, but we have really, I think what it's done is made us curate every part of our life. Mm -hmm. I've curated my friends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some, you just, you know, they don't call, you don't call, whatever. It wasn't really that important. Mm -hmm. The ones you really care about, you are reaching out to. Yes, you do want to touch them and feel them and meet. And I think for creativity, it is important to go back and have meetings and be together, but not as much. Mm -hmm. I was quite honestly being stuck in an Uber for $40 for an hour when I could talk to you for longer on Zoom, but also product. Mm -hmm. Just reuse is becoming so much more important. Do I need that next thing? Why don't I buy something really special if I'm going to buy it? Mm -hmm. Or why doesn't it give back to something else mm -hmm. or somebody? Which is kind of where you started your whole business, right? Becoming that, that line of clothing for women and girls for their first special occasion. I used to joke with my colleagues at Christie's when we started our corporate social responsibility program that we should consider presenting ourselves as the original recycler at 250 years of age because buy quality, use it as long as you can steward it down and pass to the next generation of caregivers. Quality does have its, its merits for sure. It really, it really is true. And for anybody who's had, you know, we've lost someone like a parent who's 
lived a wonderful life. Mm. All those things you gave them all of a sudden come back to you. Mm. So it's funny, I've started, you know, not making as much or buying as much in, in a different way because I don't want it to all end up back at my kids. Right. So what you do together is so important. And corporate re social responsibility, I think through my career, I've learned so much about different ways. So I have a friend who works for Tony Pritzker in California. Mm -hmm. He gives a philanthropy allowance to his workers. So they might get a couple thousand dollars to spend a year, as long as it goes to something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And even um, one of my friend's daughters lived with me a couple summers and she worked for David Solomon of Goldman Sachs who happens to live here. But they also were allowed to pick a charity that they believed in and worked for. And it's a great way to bring your young people in your companies, which we always did with different events. So one I did was give a spit. So give a spit, all the young people joined me. What it was for bone marrow, for people who needed a bone marrow transplant, we, we went to colleges. And we would give them a pizza party if they would get swabbed. And my assistant who helped me run it, she ended up saving someone's life. So awesome. Really awesome. The things you can do that, you know, whether, you know, we talk about the runs, the different runs, the walks, whatever, and you make the t-shirts. This is how you bring philanthropy and corporate social responsibility into your companies. Yeah, creativity. I always said that money is, is, the, is the easiest. Money is the least creative solution to a problem, right? Like you don't need money to come up with creative ideas as you've just demonstrated. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanna thank our guest today, Kay Unger, the CEO of Kay Unger Design and the chair emerita at Parsons School of Design and a trustee at the New School University among countless other great organizations. Kay, I hope you'll come back on the caring economy in the coming months. Well, I hope I'll be asked back. I've got loads of notes of all the stories I haven't told. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kay, and all the best to you and David. Thanks, Toby. This was wonderful.